Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am Scott Challoner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in the show today we'll be joined by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss but first and foremost I'm delighted to be joined by Helena Flowers, the owner and managing director of manufacturing firms Andel Plastics Limited and Max Mag Moulding Magnets Limited, both based in Birmingham, West Midlands. Helena, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. No problem. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's a real pleasure having you with us. And the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss your take on leadership as a whole. But considering that this generation of business leaders is probably going through, it's fair to say, one of the greatest tests of our time, I think it would be remiss of me if I didn't ask you just how it's been trying to get through the COVID-19 pandemic over the last few months. It's been challenging, obviously. I think most people will, uh, will agree with that. We've managed to stay open all the way through, um, which has been obviously quite important, I think, to support the government in what they're trying to do. Um, We did only have to furlough uh, skeleton staff and the rest of us managed to keep going. Um, The tool room itself then managed to secure some work to actually help with the NHS project, um, which actually, I think, gave all of us a good sense of purpose that we were actually helping in a way. Um, and, and really drove us to, to keep going. Um, it's been interesting in other ways because we've actually had time to step back and take a look at processes and positions. And when we've had to consider uh, working in bubbles and keeping social distancing and especially bio burden um, contact with products that we're actually manufacturing, we've looked at actually investing um, in the business. We've put some robotics in and change some of our processes, uh, streamlining things, which has actually allowed us the time and space to do it, whereas normally you wouldn't have the time to do it. You're so busy just getting through days and weeks. So it's actually given us a little bit of breathing space, um, which has been quite interesting to learn about our own business a bit deeper, really. So despite the fact that it's been a quite challenging and a quite sensitive time for many, business really has had some positives to take from this period and there are some opportunities there inevitably. Yes, I think so. We've certainly streamlined some processes. We've switched to a night shift as well so we can work within the bubbles, which has the added benefit then of saving us electricity. So we're not having to sort of start all the machinery up and cool it up and down. So we've been able to actually employ a night shift tool setter. So we've actually created a bit of work in one area and I know certainly talking to some of my customers, just changing the process and the way they do things. I've got one customer that's recruited 15 people, another that's recruited 10. So I don't think it's all negative. And we've certainly seen with the problems in China, a lot of people trying to reshore their business to the UK. So there's a lot of people looking to source in the UK with that nice supply chain that you know they could just get in the car or they have just more security than it being overseas and suddenly they can't travel or they can't get their product in. And would you say that there's anything from a leadership perspective that you've learned over the last few months? It's mainly been communication, I think, that has been the initial problem, I suppose. Uh, For me, I wanted to stay open. I wanted to keep business going. 
And at the start, a lot of employees were worried that we were going to close because then they would not have an income. I have to say then when government announced furlough, a lot of them then wanted to go on furlough and stay at home and, and get out of the risk. So it, it was quite tricky to communicate with them why we wanted to stay open, why I thought it was safe to stay open and uh, sort of get them all on board. So, yes, it's sort of just, just leading them through that um, so that we were all trying to be a bit British about it, I suppose, stiff up the lift and keep going and just keep the economy going because obviously I'm very aware that government has got to get all this money for furlough and all these grants and loans from somewhere. So if we can do our bit and just keep plodding along, then that's what I found uh, interesting is just trying to keep everyone on board with that. There has been, of course, a lot of widespread praise for the measures that the government have brought in to keep businesses afloat, such as the furlough scheme, as you've mentioned there, the small business loans are as well included within that. But it's perhaps a little bit of a different story when it comes to safety guidelines for businesses to open and operate safely, for businesses to have continued to open, to be open during the lockdown and have operated safely as well. In your case, were you satisfied that you've known throughout exactly what's been expected of you and it's been easy to adhere to these safety procedures? It has been for us, yes. I, I spent a lot of time researching at the beginning and listening to the daily briefings and just taking in everything that was said. I'm quite lucky in that our factory is very airy and the way we work, we don't tend to work together. It tends to be because you have your own machines and it's quite easy to split the offices with uh, sort of move people so they're in their own or uh, my my PA and my accounts lady, she's uh, set up working remotely and um, uh, yeah, I, I didn't find it too bad to stick to it. And obviously my own common sense told me what I would want if I was an employee, so I felt safe. So we just implement, implemented that, basically. And can you see some features that have become a custom part of the lockdown period becoming a permanent part of the way that business functions in this country, particularly with within the realms of remote working, that sort of thing? I think... So, I mean, certainly with my PA, um, one of the people that we've employed during the lockdown is now actually her husband. So she's going to continue to work from home because then she'll have some childcare responsibilities while he works in the factory. And at first, she did not want to work from home. She she didn't think she could work remotely and be disciplined enough to put in the hours consistently. But actually now she loves it. And uh, I think... If you do work from home and you're set up properly, you can be a lot more productive and give yourself more time to concentrate on one task rather than, you know, people coming in and out and jumping from one thing to another. So that's definitely something now that will happen a lot more. And because we've had to adapt to things like Zoom meetings and Teams, um, I think just being able to see each other and put the technology in place, it's made it so much easier that I think we'll continue to do that in the future. That's certainly positive to hear. And when it came to having to um, sort of furlough certain individuals um, as well and sort of manage people under the new safety procedures, just how was it from a mental health point of view, just making sure that everybody was okay? Because I can imagine that whereas some people are more inclined to just get their heads down and keep working come what may, some might need just a little bit more sort of reassurance and sort of extra attention. Yes, there were a couple who um, did not want to come back to work uh somewhat understandable because they were shielding partners 
Uh, others weren't quite so understandable. It seemed more of a fear. Obviously, when we risk assessed people coming back, uh, we did prioritise people who had their own transport, who didn't have to take public transport and things like that. But then uh, a couple of other people who weren't so keen on coming back, but we needed them. What we did was give them guidelines of uh, and, and obviously lots of links to the government websites as well on what processes they would go through and find within the factory to protect them. So where the hand sanitizer was, where the, where the washrooms were, what we'd done about the canteen and things so that they would actually have some confidence um, in when they came in, what was actually going to be waiting for them, what had changed and what hadn't. And we found that worked quite well. That's certainly encouraging uh, to hear as well. Um, just backtracking ever so slightly, I'm interested to know that when you realised that you were sort of facing a crisis of the magnitude of COVID-19 and that was something that you would have to manage, um, how did you sort of mentally prepare yourself for the challenge of dealing with that? I've been through quite a few challenges before, so I tend to just take it in my stride and just think it's got to be done. Uh, you're only ever going to be able to do it to the best of your ability. So just taking all the information that's out there, sort through it and do the best you can. Um, it, it just, and I, I'm quite lucky I've got my parents, I live with my parents, I've got my parents to sort of back me up and obviously a good team at Andel as well and MaxMag. And it was just really a, we've got to get through this, we've got to get it done. So let's just approach it step by step and just take one thing at a time. What we can control, we'll control. What we can't control, you know, with orders coming in and stuff, then we just have to wait and react. So it was just, it's not too different to business challenges, but maybe slightly scarier. Mm, it's a balancing act between proactivity and reactivity, I suppose, isn't it? Being able to have plans and procedures in place, but be able to make measured decisions with short notice when guidelines and circumstances change, of course. Um, I suppose... Yeah. In any sort of context, the everyday running of a business as well, and also in times of difficulty, it's common for employees when they need a little bit of direction and inspiration to look to their sort of executives, business leaders for that. But when you are the person who is at the top of the tree, as it were, like yourself, where is it that you look to when you need a little bit of inspiration for yourself? I am a member of some leaders groups, uh, like a, a women's leader group specifically. Uh, as I say, I live with my parents. It, it, both businesses were my parents originally. Mm. Uh, they retired in about 2015. So I'm very lucky they've been there. They know, you know, the mental thought processes of worrying that you're responsible for other people's incomes. So I can go to them. And, and I'm also a member of Made in the Midlands group, which is quite a strong networking um and, you know, you can approach them and sort of say, how are other people handling this? And I spoke to a lot of the customers to see what they were doing, how they were feeling and what their reactions were going to be. Uh, and I think, to be honest, we were all sort of having the same feelings and concerns. So it was quite good just to be able to share them. We have quite good relationships with the customers and suppliers. So I, th I think that helps a lot. I think it's one of the biggest messages you can give to somebody who's even starting out in business, isn't it? That you are never alone and there are plenty of other executives, directors and business leaders you can speak to out there, seek help from, learn from. We're never a lone wolf in a leadership position. And it's also a process of constantly learning as well. It's been a huge learning curve, this uh, pandemic, hasn't it? I mean, we've seen 
people obviously learning not just um, an awful lot about themselves and their own adaptability, but also just as much about the people around them and the way that they've applied themselves during this time. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think one thing that I've learned a lot with, especially with these NHS products that have gone on with lockdown, you're working with people you might normally call a competitor, uh, but because they can't get their tooling from China, all of a sudden they're, they're looking in the UK. So normally, whereas they might not even look at you now, you're collaborating with them. And I think that's built some really good, strong links, hopefully going forward. Uh, but like you say, you're not on your own and you only have to look at LinkedIn and things like this these days where uh, people are posting. And as you say, we we can ask for help. Uh, I uh, work quite closely with Warwick Manufacturing Group and I, I would say that I have a couple of mentors there so I could bring them and sort of say, what do you think of this? You know, what, what do you think of this plan? And they were good with supporting documentation or just asking the just it's just kind of asking the questions sometimes that make you think and you probably already know the answer it's just having the confidence to kind of say okay i thought that was right just make sure everybody else agrees with me sort of thing mm. completely understand where you're coming from there and having reflected on your experience over the past few months and your views on leadership i suppose it's only right that we also address the future helena just before we do wrap things up on the program today um we are of course going to have to adjust to a new way of working and a new way of living over the course of the next 12 to 18 months until we hopefully emerge from this situation but over that time what is next for you and for andor plastics for max mag molding magnets and what do you really hope to achieve during this period i'm hoping to continue with the sort of looking at the business and the processes and improving them trying to make us more efficient and more environmentally friendly, as I say, with the electricity consumption and stuff, that we've, we found a way to actually reduce it now. And I think we all saw with the coronavirus the, the haze of fog in China that disappeared and things, and, and you see what an impact your industry can have. Uh, I, I'm quite keen to try and take that forward. Um, obviously, we want to build on some of the relationships that we did develop during the NHS where they would normally have gone abroad. We want to try and get the reshoring back in the UK and maintain the business. Um, I don't think we would look for too much growth possibly within the next eight to 10 months. I'm not sure that will happen, but so long as we make it through and we meet all the customer demands and I just hope and pray that nobody at work comes down with the virus and if we can make it through i will consider that a job well done let's certainly hope there'll be some good news to share on the horizon as far as that's concerned helena definitely and you know just given how informative it's been having you come onto the program to discuss not just your views on leadership but also your experience over the last few months i think it'll be fantastic to actually catch up in future and have you back on the show with us just to see what is going on a few months further down the line and we can reassess where we're at at that point That'd be excellent. Yeah, no problem at all. I think that would be fantastic. I've really enjoyed having you join us today. It's been a real pleasure. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, please do take care, Helena, and stay safe with all still going on. Thank you, Scott, and you.
And I would also reiterate that message to all those tuning in today as well. Please do look after yourselves and others and be sensible with the lifting of restrictions because it does make a real difference in saving lives. Uh, Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. During his days as skipper, Sir Andrew chalked up the second highest number of test victories for an England captain in history and also joined an illustrious club of just three England skippers to have secured the ashes both at home and away in Australia. Since retiring from playing, he was appointed Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board, a role which he still holds today. And I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former Director of Cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career. Full stop. And um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity, and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets, and there was my chance, and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to? see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, 
to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but uh, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch 
uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that. You know, that, that wasn't a moment, that was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you're privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed... And this applies, again, to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team. Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So... You know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team... Um, being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it just generally about leading I, I a think team so, okay yes. uh, number one thing about leadership i'm absolutely certain about this is 
that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on home soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of 
you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Uh, a very inclusive, if you're thinking about 
think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary yeah. thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.